Well, I know this is a little bit of a sore subject in Seattle, but I want to talk about penalty kicks for a moment. Um, do you know what blocks most penalty kicks? It's the fear of shame. The fear of shame. Let me just explain that to you. According to research that was done on the Italian and French first leagues over a series of years, goalies facing a penalty kick jump to the left, the kicker's left, 57% of the time. They jump to the right, kicker's right, 41% of the time, which, if you do the math, adds up to 98%, which means only two times out of 100, they just stand right there. Now, the, most kickers will kick left or right, only 17% of the time will kick right up the center, which is unfortunate because only two times out of 100, is, that's where the goalie is. <laughs> Right? Why wouldn't you kick right up the, the middle if the goalie's jumping to either side 98% of the time? You want to know the answer? That's what the researchers found. The fear of shame. Because in that one time that you kick right at the goalie and the goalie doesn't move, all they have to do is go, got your ball. And, and you look really, really foolish for having just kicked it right at the goalie. Right? That's the fear of shame. I want to talk about that today, but we're doing so as we start a new series. It's five parts on fear. Fear, all caps. Why? Well, fear is at the root of a lot of challenges that we're facing in our society today and we're facing individually. Now, let me just say, fear is not always a bad thing. Fear can actually be a good thing. It can protect us from harm, right? I mean, we are hardwired for fear. There are times when you definitely want your amygdala to kick in and help you out if you're walking through the woods and you see something that looks like a snake or a stick. You'd better assume, uh, and very quickly, that it's a snake and not a stick, right? It's better to confuse uh, uh, to think that a, a stump is a tiger than to think that a tiger is a stump. Sit down and enjoy your lunch, right? See, you know, fear is not, not a bad thing. And in a day of rising nationalism and increasing concern about our natural environment, we don't want to dismiss fear. Fear might actually protect us. It's not a bad thing. But it can also hurt us. Fear can be deeply destructive. And we're experiencing a little bit of that. The Chapman University Survey of American Fears is a longitudinal study that's been going on for a long time. And the researchers say this about fear. Persistent fear negatively affects individuals' decision-making abilities and causes anxiety, depression, and poor physical health. Further, fear harms communities and society by corroding social trust and civic engagement. A few weeks ago, did you see the, the headline of the Seattle Times? Stressed out in Seattle, we're the most anxious major metro in the US, new census data shows. Hey, we're number one. Congratulations. Oh, that's not good. But did you know the most frequent command in the whole Bible is fear not. Did you know that? Someone went through and counted 365 cases of that and they made the, 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 the observation, hey, that's one for each day, every day. 
you're to start the day with that thought, fear not. It's a command that God gives us in the Bible. It's the most important command. Now, one day of those 365, 2,000 years ago, that phrase, fear not, came up an awful lot. We see it in the birth narratives of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Why? Not because fear is necessarily bad, because on that day, God did something to change the underlying dynamics of fear. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about these next five times together. But today, we're going to talk about the fear of shame. And I want to remember that day with you by rereading the text that the Saldanos read for us earlier today, which is Matthew 1, 18 through 23. I'm going to invite you to pull out a Bible. We actually have the black books in the rack in front of, in front of you there. You can pull it out there. Or you can look on the screen. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together from Matthew 1, verse 18. We'll stop at 23. And um, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. All right, did you hear it? Did you hear the command? Fear not. I mean, that's what wakes Joseph up in his sleep. Word from the Lord in his sleep. Fear not. You see it there in verse 20. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Or as the old King James, and I love this, uh, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not. So what's the fear for Joseph? What do you think he's afraid of? In verse 19, we get a hint. It says public disgrace. He didn't, he didn't want to expose Mary to public disgrace. He didn't want to expose himself to public disgrace either. And the, the, the word is translated oftentimes shame. Shame. He didn't want shame for Mary, and he didn't want shame for himself, and he's afraid that it's almost inevitable, given what he's just heard, that she's pregnant. So what is shame? Well, here's my definition of shame. Shame is the subtle or sometimes overwhelming sense that there's something wrong with me. Shame is the subtle or overwhelming sense that there's something wrong with me. Now, of course, we know there's nothing wrong with Mary. We learn that elsewhere, right? And, we, we, and, and we, we've heard it from the narrator right here. Matthew tells us that. 
Uh, we know there's nothing wrong with Joseph. He's a righteous man. The narrator tells us that also. So here's the problem, though. While Mary knows it and Joseph knows it, Nazareth doesn't get the memo. That external audience, everybody in the stands, they don't know. And so for them, when they look at Mary and Joseph, what they can't help but ask is, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? And there's the, and there's the shame. There's something wrong with me. So what Joseph plans to do is to hide, which, by the way, is what you and I inevitably do in the face of our sense of shame. We hide, and he hides. And so there's a cover-up, and then there's a breakup, and he decides to dismiss her quietly. But this is not a story that you can conceal for very long. Eventually, this little um, bundle of joy will show, and the story will be out in Nazareth one way or another. You can bet even pre-internet, this story is going to go fast. Right? And Joseph's afraid. He can already hear those voices. What's wrong with you? He's afraid. He's afraid of what other people can't help but think. And there are only two options. Like if Joseph's walking through the courtyard and there are the other carpenters, maybe they're going to the tool library or whatever, and they hang out there. And, and you know, there's only two conclusions they could draw. No matter what this crazy guy Joseph says, they know either she betrayed him and made a fool out of him, or he dishonored her and then abandoned her? Oh my gosh. He's afraid of what they'll think. He's also, you could imagine, afraid of what he might begin to think himself. I mean, he goes, he might go to, I know, I, know, I love Mary. I would, never, I would never hurt Mary, dishonor her in any way. But, but, but what has she done to me, right? I mean, how could I marry someone who would hurt me? I mean, what's wrong with me? Why am I not enough for her? Um, and so there's, there's voices of shame that could begin to come into his own heart as he internalizes those external audiences and kind of owns them. And, and so here he is, Joseph, he's afraid. This is a man in a panic. This is a man who's fleeing. He's on the run from the opinions of others, and I think the opinions of himself. Okay, that's what we're looking at. That's the fear of shame. That's the problem as Joseph experiences it. And I think it's a problem for me too, and I don't know about you, but I feel it. Now the question is, how do the dynamics work? Because I want to suggest that this is not just keeping Joseph awake by night, but the fear of shame is actually driving the direction of his life by day. Right? You know the story. It's about to break up his marriage it's about to push other people away from him as he kind of hides, might even leave town, and it's about to cripple his confidence maybe for the rest of his life. Who knows? I mean, if he doesn't figure this out, we may never know the name Joseph. See, the fear of shame, it's not just a mood internally, but it drives our lives externally. Ask, for example, the penalty kicker. She's standing there, and she has to decide, do I kick right, do I kick left, do I kick up the middle? Now, this is an interesting game theory problem that's been studied. Um, one Freakonomics episode, there was a, an economist who reflects 
on the, the, the choices that have to be made in a split second before either can see what the other is going to do. And the, the economist says, you know, we think that when there's a penalty kick happening that the primary goal is to score a point. He says, actually, no. The primary goal in that moment is not to score a point. It's, quote, the goal is also not to look foolish. That's Steve Levitt, University of Chicago. That's really what's going on. See, if it, the, the cost of kicking a ball to the center right at the goalie is too high if in those two times out of 100, the goalie just happens not to move. I mean, it almost never happened, but if the goalie would just stand there and you'd kick right to her, you, she'd be like, gotcha. I mean, it looks like you weren't even trying. Worse, it looks like you didn't even care. And at that point, you're not just losing the point, not just losing the game, you are losing your sense of dignity. That's like way too high a cost. And if that happens at the professional level, it's like uh, you need a bodyguard to get to your car. It's the first sentence in your Wikipedia page. It's a career-ending mistake. And so people just don't do it. They don't do it. They kick where the goalie is always going to go. I mean, they think they pick the right side. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Really, it's the fear of shame, the economist tells us, that's actually driving the decision-making process, not the desire to win. And that just doesn't sound right to us, but that's the truth. So the fear of shame can drive decisions in your life as well. For example, the fear of shame can drive loneliness. It's the fear of shame that tells you, hey, you can't afford to let people know the real you because if they did, they wouldn't want you. And so it starts to drive superficiality in relationships. It keeps us from dating, keeps us from socializing, keeps us from building depth into our relationships, keeps us sometimes from friending at all, loneliness. Fear of shame can drive careers. It tells you that you're not qualified for the career that you want and the career that you have, you're just an imposter. Fear of shame can drive our moral decisions. Uh, we lie so often because we think it's too risky to tell the truth, right? People would reject us if we did. And peer pressure is all about our inability to re risk rejection by people that we care about. The fear of shame can drive addiction, destructive coping mechanisms that we take up to numb the pain of voices that tell us, you're not enough. The fear of shame can drive debt and materialism. It tells us that you've got to keep up with the Joneses. We clothe our shame, right, in all this compensatory cars and lawns and fashion and degrees. The fear of shame can drive mental illness. It can overwhelm our sense of self with anxiety and depression. It can lead to the exaggeration of self and narcissism. So what I'm saying is that whether it's subtle or overwhelming, when you have this sense that there's just something wrong with you, it keeps you from being all that you're meant to be. It drives your life. Even though there's nothing wrong with you. There may not be. Right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with a kicker and a kick straight up the middle. It's actually the high probability shot. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with Joseph staying with Mary. They love each other. They're meant for each other. There's nothing wrong with, let's say, Job. Job, remember the Old Testament character who's got all this crisis going on in his life? He describes the dynamic really well. We know as readers of Job that he's a righteous man. We're told that at the beginning. But he gets a place where he can't do anything because of the shame. It becomes debilitating. He says this in chapter 10, verse 15. If I am guilty, woe to me. He says, okay, fine, if I'm guilty. 
that even if I'm innocent, I cannot lift my head for I am full of shame and drowned in my affliction. Oh my gosh, I can't even lift my head. And so shame is the thing that keeps the kicker from taking the shot. It's the thing that would keep Joseph from taking Mary. It's the thing that would keep Job from even lifting his head. I'm full of shame and drowned in my affliction. What is he saying? Hey, there's nothing wrong with me, but everyone thinks there's something wrong with me because of this crisis that I'm in. I'm beginning to internalize other people's views of myself and they're becoming my own view of myself. They think something's wrong. Now I think something's wrong with me and I, I, will, I can't even lift up my head. That's the dynamic. It's the fear of shame. Joseph is going through this same experience right now. But God does a wonderful thing for Joseph. God slips into a dream and speaks a word to him that changes the fundamental the fundamental dynamics, the substructure, the fear of shame in his life, breaks it apart. It changes everything. What's that word? The word of the angel breaks the power of Joseph's shame. Three words, actually. The Lord says to Joseph in a dream, I'm with you. I'm with you. A man of honor. God himself stands with Joseph in his shame. A man of honor, God made known to us in Jesus Christ, stands with you and me in our shame. I mean, this is the gospel. Right, so we're in the story, we're asked to imagine Joseph falls asleep and in the sleep an angel slips into his dream and he speaks for God and he says, I'm with you in this. Yeah, Mary, yeah, you, yeah, Nazareth, I'm with you. Emmanuel is what he says. This child will be born, his name's gonna be Emmanuel. Now that means God with us. That's the insight. That Matthew wants to make sure we, 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 we hear the voice of Isaiah coming from eighth century BC. Ah, here's the fulfillment of that ancient promise. This child will be born to a virgin and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it means. Notice there are two names here and I used to think for a long time, oh my gosh, they're not paying close attention. How could this be the fulfillment of Emmanuel when they call him Jesus? They, like, well, Matthew's not so concerned about the, the names themselves as he is the meaning of the names and they both mean the same thing because Emmanuel means God with us and Jesus means he saves. And he saves God by being with us. This is the word of the Lord and it changes the dynamics, right? Can you see how that happens? Not yet? Okay, wait a minute. Let, let, me, try, let me try and explain it this way. Let me give you another verse from the Bible. This, see if this works. This is Proverbs 29, verse 25. I love this. You should memorize this. The fear of others lays a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is secure. Kids, I love Proverbs, right? It's a little riddle. The fear of others leads a snare. A snare was a trap that they put in the woods to catch an animal. The fear of others lays a snare for you. That is, when you give others, other people, the power to tell you what's wrong with you, you lay out a trap for yourself. That's a trap. 
That's the wisdom of the text, right? On the other hand, if you give no one the power to tell you what's wrong with you, but the Lord, him and him alone, you know what that is? You'll be secure. Some translations say safe. And the word that's used there is the word for a walled fortress. It's the wisdom. Of it. Like you get to choose snare, trap, walled fortress, safe, secure. And the difference is who you give the power to tell you what's wrong with you. And so let, let me ask you the question. Who has the power to tell you what's wrong with you? Who do you give that power to? Parents? Bosses? Friends? The group? Your feed? Advertising? Who gets to say? Now maybe you say, well, I don't actually let anybody tell me what's wrong with me. Right? I just let people tell me what's awesome about me. <laughs> okay, good for you. But, but I want to tell you that's not really a solution. That's no solution at all. Because hear this, listen to me. Anybody you give the power to tell you what's right about you also has the power to tell you what's wrong about you. And you don't want to give that away. Because when they do, it's devastating. Even the fear of it is devastating. So that's the dynamic, right? So here's, here's how it looks for the Apostle Paul. Let me give you another example, how he works with it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you <laughs> or by any human court. He's bold. He's like, I'm not going to be judged by you. I do not even judge myself. It's like, I don't even do that to myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It's like, I'm, it is the Lord who judges me. Do you hear the three audiences there? This is really important teaching from the Bible. Like there are three audiences. There's other people. That's the human court Paul talks about. That's you, his readers. There's himself. He says, I don't judge myself. I don't acquit myself. I'm just not putting myself in that business. And then, then there's Jesus. Ah, the Lord. This is the one. The one whose name means he saves. The one who is Emmanuel, God with me. That's the one I give the power to tell me what's right about me and what's wrong about me? The one who is safe. I bring the shame and I do my business with him alone. See that? Who gets to tell me what's right or wrong? I don't give that power to you. I don't give that power to myself. I give it to him. So I should also say along the way, Shame isn't always bad, and you don't hear that in the culture today. Actually, think about it. If you drive a car into a parade, if you shoot a jogger in a neighborhood, you should feel ashamed. You should, right? So what's going on there? Well, shame can be like thirst to a person who's forgotten long ago to drink water. It's like a, a light on the dashboard that goes, oh, yeah. Shame is the thing that can keep us from being too comfortable with the brokenness in our lives. The question isn't, is, should you experience shame or not? Really the question is, what do you do when, when it happens to you, when you feel that? What do you do with it? And the answer is, Paul's answer is, I bring it to Jesus. Right? A man of honor stands in your shame. I just want, that's what I want you to take home today. A man of honor, stand, he takes our shame upon himself in order to give you his honor. I'm going to stand with you in the midst of that. 
This is the gospel. This is God. This is the, this is the promise of this season when we celebrate Emmanuel. Think about for that, that for just a second. Think about what the incarnation means. This is God, the creator of time and space, coming into a uh, existence as a child, but not just any child, as an illegitimate child, as a child with no human father, as a bastard, they would say. Actually, the rumors about Jesus extend from this moment through his whole life. Who, who is this guy? Where's his father? Who's he from? We don't know. They were making fun of him. They were ridiculing him. God chose to come into the world that way. He came into shame intentionally. And then you can say at the other end of his life, the cross, the redemption. The cross is nothing if it's not a symbol of shame. It was the one form of execution that was invented not simply to kill people, but to shame them, to expose them to public disgrace, to dehumanize them. In the words of one uh, writer, it was to ensure the elimination of victims from consideration as members of the human race. Wow. And God chose that shame for you and for me. I mean, this is a man of honor standing right in the middle of our shame. Do you know that Brene Brown, some of you are familiar with Brene Brown, she says the two words that you most need to hear when you're faced with your own shame is me too. Because that's somebody else saying, yeah, I'm with you in that. Well, this isn't just, these aren't just words. This is the God of the universe literally standing with you in the extremes of shame. He's saying to you, yes, I know all about your shame. I know all about it. <laughs> you can't surprise me with that. But you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. That's his word to us. That was the word to Joseph. The word of an angel breaks the power of Joseph's shame. It changes the dynamics. I'm reminded of Martin Luther. You know, we had Reformation Sunday recently. We're not the right man at our side. The man of God's own choosing. He's talking about Jesus. There probably would be no Reformation without that assurance that a man of honor stands with us in our shame. Gives us great courage. Real courage. And you start to see that in, in Joseph. By the way, you know what scholars tell me? And I didn't know this until just this last week I realized this. Scholars tell us the reason that Joseph takes Mary with him to Bethlehem. You know, they're both going into Bethlehem. No room at the inn. We're, gonna, we're coming to this later. Uh, the reason he brings her, he's the one who has to register in Bethlehem. It's his ancestral city. The reason he, doesn't, he brings her is he doesn't want to leave her behind in Nazareth. Because Nazareth is a place where all those voices of shame, he does not want to expose her to shame. He takes that shame upon himself by bringing her to his ancestral town because he knows very well the implications of coming with a pregnant woman with whom you are not married into your own hometown. He knows when he gets there, he's going to hear people say, fornicator, and wagging their finger. He knows when he gets there, he's going to hear people say, cuckold, and laughing behind his back. But he goes because he knows the one word that really matters is the word that God speaks about him, and it's the word we see there in verse 19, righteous. Fornicator, no. Cuckold, no. Even if it were true, the one word that matters is the word that this child will say over Joseph when he grows up in his grace, righteous. That's the declaration of God over any believer, no matter what we have done, righteous. That's the word that matters. So you see, he takes her right into the heart of 
of his shame. What it means is the fear is no longer there. It's no longer there for Joseph. And it needn't be for us either. In this moment, Joseph takes the shot right up the middle. And you know what? You and I can do the same thing. We can take the shot right at the goalie. It's the highest probability outcome for us, right? Because this child will say righteous over us, even if the goalie happens to stand there and catch the ball. So what? This is not the last word on your life. The last word on your life gets spoken by the child who grows up to save us from our sins. So look to Jesus. Disregard the shame and take the shot. A man of honor stands right beside you. You can look up into the fans and no matter what they say, you are good. And in fact, the Bible tells us who's actually in the stands. It's not all those voices that shame you. It's a great company. It's a great cloud of witnesses. Everybody in that stand who actually sees you that matters are those who are nothing more nor less than sinners saved by grace. And they are cheering you on. They are saying, take the shot. (laughs) Believe the good news. Trust God and take the shot. Listen. Listen to what the Bible says. All things work together for good for those who love God. Trust God and take the shot. He is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we can ask or imagine. Trust God and take the shot. Is there anything too hard for God? No, trust God and take the shot. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Trust God and take the shot. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Trust God and take the shot. Let's pray. God, we believe. Would you help us in our unbelief? Would you help us to hear this word you spoke in the dead of night to a man on the run? That we might be turned around by the mystery of beauty and the horror of the cross. It's a sign of the depths of your love and it's not just a symbol but it's it's a power for those who believe it, the power of salvation. The world will look at it and see nothing but foolishness. But we look at it and see a man of honor standing in our shame. His shame, our shame on him brings his honor on us. <laughs> we rejoice and we, we praise you and we worship and we thank you for that. And we just pray that you'll help us to hear that word, not just superficially in our ears and go, yep, I heard that message. Would you... Help us to hear that in the depths of our being, that we might live from that place of belovedness, that we might have the boldness and courage to confront all sorts of fears, internal and external. We pray this in the name of our King Jesus and for his sake, amen.